0: We are in the book of Revelation together, so let's open up there now. Revelation chapter 10 is where we find ourselves. Revelation chapter 10. The title of this message is a silly one, Big Angels, Little Books, and Belly Aches. And that makes no sense, and so it isn't that funny, but it'll make sense when we read the chapter. Before we get to that, um, I want to say this. When we started studying the book of Revelation together, I kind of made a commitment to you and to myself that I wasn't going to take the approach where uh, I'm always trying to connect events happening in the world today and in the news with the things that we're reading in the book of Revelation That's not to say that they aren't connected. I believe very much and in very many ways they are. But that just wasn't going to be the focus of the study of our book. We really wanted to get to what the book says about Jesus, because it's about Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. Wanted to get to what it says about Jesus and his coming kingdom and his coming righteousness and judgment and all those things and kind of keep that big view and that big picture in mind. So I wasn't going to go into that thing of, oh, this particular item in the news and it might be this and that and the other. There's many books and preachers that will help you do that, and that can be fun to do. But I will admit (laughs) that if you're watching the news these days and reading the book of Revelation, it's kind of like, wow. I mean, if you're you're paying attention to the things that we're reading and and you're paying attention to things going on in our world, it's it's fairly profound. Um, Some of those things cannot escape our mention or our attention. Namely, the recent beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians. Surely you saw this in the news. I mean, you know, the context of the, of the book of Revelation in the original context of the original audience is that of Christians being persecuted. And unless we're getting it wrong, and unless we're getting Scripture wrong, as we move toward the coming of Christ, there's going to be more and more persecution for Christians in a broader and broader way in the world. It's going to intensify. And we read about in the book of Revelation, we spotlighted before, about Christians being beheaded. And if I was teaching the book of Revelation a couple years ago, I probably would have said, you know, nobody gets beheaded today. That's the way that they... Executed people back in the first century sometimes, and so this is just figurative for Christians who'll be losing their lives to persecution. But we turn on the news today, and it's insane of all things. People being beheaded. It's radical. And when 21 of our brothers are executed by the Islamic State in such a way, we need to be mindful of that. Scripture tells us in Hebrews 13 that we're, we're to be mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing persecution. So I want to help bring that to our mind right now, the persecution that's happening of Christians in the world, and particularly these 21 men, uh, with a little video, and then we'll get into the text. a Very dangerous time to be a Christian torture, beheadings, destruction of the highest of- level of persecution of Christians. A church congregation barricading themselves in from hundreds of riot police Christians are enduring attacks for their faith like Along with never the savage before. Savage kidnappings of Christian schoolgirls in Nigeria by Boko Haram and the burning of Christian images churches. of violence dominate headlines. Christians are being warned to have a choice convert to Islam, pay a very steep price or face death chilling new video showing the beheading of 21 egyptian christians beheadings of 21 christians 21 christian men beheaded by islamic state the title of the video is a message signed with blood to the nation of we the cross the, the sharpest jump in violent uh, attacks against christians we need to make the persecuted church an issue of prayer allow me to just offer a prayer, Lord these these sorts of things in many ways are are far from us in the lives that we daily live out here, and yet they 're not that far. These are our brothers and our sisters in Christ and Lord, we pray for your church that is being persecuted around the world. We pray that the nearness, your nearness, your presence would be their good. And that you would strengthen them with the power of the Holy Spirit. That Christ, you would sustain them. You would continue to make them faithful in the face of opposition. You meet them in the deep, scary places. Pray for their families and their friends and their loved ones. Again, that your nearness would sustain, that you'd cause your face to shine upon them, Lord, and that you'd give them peace. And Lord, for for us here, who are able to live lives with very little, if any, consequence of being Christians. Pray that you would help us to be faithful. For we have great opportunity to be bold in our faith, to be witnesses without fear. We have opportunities of open doors all around us. And so we ask that you would make us faithful. Some of our brothers and sisters are dying for you. Would you help us to live for you, to live faithfully for the glory of Jesus Christ? by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our text today is going to kind of connect with things like this a little bit. Those things that are incomprehensible, unimaginable, like we were just reminded of. Those times and those spaces and those places in life that don't make sense, that seem out of control that feel out of control. Our text touches on that a little bit. So let's read the text and then we'll talk about it. Revelation chapter 10, short chapter. We'll read the whole chapter and cover the whole thing. John is still receiving this vision from God and it says in Revelation 10 verse 1, And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write it down. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. But that in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, go take the book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. When I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to the degree that we can, understand your word today. Thank you that your word is meant to be understandable to us and relatable to our lives and helpful for our lives. Helpful in assisting us to follow Jesus faithfully, to become more like him in the way that we think, act, feel, and live, and interact with the world around us. So please help us to hear, to take in, to digest, to devour, and to obey your word in its totality and what it tells us today. And please help me, Lord, to communicate in a way that is loving, faithful, and helpful before you and before this precious church. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to an interesting point in the book of Revelation. We are almost halfway through. And we're nearing the end, though there's some pretty radical stuff to come, of the portion about God's wrath and judgment being poured out upon the world. You remember back in chapter 4 that John was invited up into heaven where he's given this vision of what is to come, the future, and the end, the ultimate judgment and the renewal of all things. And the first thing that God showed John in that vision was a vision of the throne. And God upon the throne communicating to John that in, in, in the face of all that will unfold in the world that won't seem to make sense and will seem to be out of control, that God is securely seated upon his throne, that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that the fate of the nations are secure in his hands. And after he saw God upon the throne, he saw Jesus. And Jesus appeared as a lamb that was slain because Jesus was slain for the sins of the world, our sin. But he also was like a lion. And he's like a lamb because Jesus is the one who brought God's mercy and grace to the world by dying on the cross for us. And because Jesus brought the mercy of God, Jesus can also bring the justice of God. So he's not only the lamb who was slain on the cross for our sins, he's the lion who will bring God's justice and righteousness to earth. And he's the only one who was able to open the seven seals of the scroll. You remember that God had in his hand a scroll with seven seals on it. And Jesus was the only one worthy to open it. Every time he opened a seal, it released more of God's justice on earth, more of God's judgment, God's wrath. And he opened up six seals and then he opened up the seventh seal and from the seventh seal came these seven angels with seven trumpets. And every time a trumpet is blown, more wrath is released on earth, more judgment, more of God's justice, more of God's confrontation against wickedness and its perpetuators. And when we get to the seventh trumpet, then there will come forth seven bowls And these bowls will be poured out on earth and that will be more wrath, more judgment, more justice. And all of God's wrath being poured out on the world has been a, let's be honest, horrific thing to witness in the book of Revelation. Sin is a serious thing. Wickedness is real and a real problem and God will one day confront it in an ultimate way. And we're seeing that in the book of Revelation. It's sobering but we are also seeing that God has poured out his wrath in a patient and progressive manner because God would rather extend mercy to humanity than justice. Remember, before God's justice comes in the book of Revelation, God's mercy came in the incarnation in the person of Jesus Christ in his work upon the cross. Grace, mercy, and forgiveness were extended to the world. But if one rejects the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, then there is nothing left but judgment, justice, and wrath. And that's what we're seeing unfold in the book of Revelation. And we find ourselves now in the midst of all of that messiness. But we find ourselves particularly in chapter 10 in an interlude. An interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. There was a similar interlude between the sixth and the seventh scroll. And the interludes are there for our help. The interludes are meant for the readers of the book of Revelation to be able to take a a breath in the midst of all this wrath, evil, rampant in the world and God confronting it. They're meant for us to take a breath and get perspective once again of God on the throne. God's protection of his people, God's justice coming. Take a moment, take a breath, get some perspective. It was chapter seven was the first interlude between the six and the seven seals where we saw the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel sealed by God, protected by God. And we saw those who had been martyred for their faith, gathered around the throne, covered by God, him covering them and caring for them. We get that interlude that encourages us, okay, this thing seems out of control. The world seems out of control, but God has it in control. And this is another such interlude. John is seeing this and it's first pictured with this huge angel that comes down. Verse 1, I saw another angel coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud and the rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. So this imagery here is speaking of the the majesty, the power in this angel, representative of the power of God. He comes with the clouds. This is frequent biblical language to talk about a powerful arrival in the Old Testament when God was coming to mete out justice or deal out judgment, it would be said, and he came riding on the clouds, imagery. When Jesus returns... We're told in the book of Revelation, we're told in Matthew 24, we're told elsewhere that he will come with the clouds in great glory. What does that mean? That it rains on that day? That's not what it means. It means that there's this power to it, is the picture of one coming with the clouds. And so he's coming with this power representing the judgment of God but he's also coming with this rainbow over his head. Did you notice that? And there was a rainbow and the rainbow represents God's covenantal mercy and grace. For after the flood, when God judged the world, he placed in the sky, the rainbow. And that was a picture of God's covenantal mercy and grace. And so this angel comes representing all that is happening in the book of Revelation, the strong judgment of God and the patient mercy of God coming as well. And he, he, he represents the enlightenment that comes from God, light that comes from God, because his face is like the sun, representing Jesus as the light of the world, and his feet are like fire, that authoritative judgment that's coming. And he's big. Verse 2, he had in his hand a little book which was open, and he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He's big. He's straddling the globe, so to speak. He can stand on the land and the sea, and there he is with the clouds and the rainbow and the fire and the sun face. John is seeing this, and John hears it. Right, it says in verse 3, and he cried, he cried, excuse me, with a loud voice as when a lion roars. It's massive looks big, sounds big. But this is not meant to be merely a show of power. There's a message to be communicated here. In fact, there are two messages to be communicated in this chapter. There is the message that we glean from the little book, verse two, big angel, little book. And there is a message to be gleaned, though it's Interesting. From the seven peals of thunder that speak. Again, verse three. And when the angel cried out with a loud voice, sounded like a lion that roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Two messages for us here. The little book and the voices of the seven peals of thunder. In this chapter, there is both a revelation and a mystery. There is something that is revealed, but there is also something that is concealed. There's something that we're meant to hear in the message of the little book, and there is something that we are forbidden to hear, the message from the seven voices of thunder. Verse 4, And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write it down, Of course he was, right? Because that's what John has been doing. He's seeing these visions and he's recording it for future readers. I was about to write it down, thought that's what I was supposed to do. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Well, that's a big thing for us to miss. (laughs) We've been shown so much. Why hold out now? The angel comes. He's straddling the globe. He's got the... Things happening and he's Roar, like a lion and then seven thunders speak. What does it sound like when thunders speak and John's like, oh, I gotta tell him this. No, nope. seal it up, don't write it down. Well, what did they say? Surely, Pastor Britt, you know. <laughs> I don't know. That's end of story. We're not told anymore. It's not revealed at the end like so many other things. It's not hidden in Daniel. I can't find it in Isaiah. We're not told. We are not meant to know what was said there. Okay, well, do we know anything? Well, it was probably God speaking. God's voice is often pictured in Scripture as being like thunder. Psalm 18, the Lord thundered from heaven the voice of the Most High resounded. We see that in Psalm 29 and in other places where God's voice is represented like thunder because thunder, when it's like really big, there's nothing bigger, right? Have you ever been in a huge thunderstorm? It's like rattling the windows. You're like, ah! It was probably God's voice that thundered. And when God speaks, it's important, it's profound, especially throughout Scripture. When it comes like thunder, there's something radical being said. And it was seven thunders representing his voice. So there was something comprehensive, complete, total, and of great import being said. John was told not to tell us. So what do we make of that? We can just hear that and move on. We can't speculate. It's futile to speculate. We have no clues. What do we make of that? That God didn't want us to know. You know, there comes a time in the life of every Christian where they must be confronted with this question. Can I trust God with what I do not know? Do I trust God with what he is not telling me? you know because much of life turns out to be a mystery doesn't it i mean it turns out the older you get i i don't know i'm i'm turning 43 next weekend getting old it seems like the older you get the less you know it seems like more and more is mysterious i mean my son he's 14 he knows everything he does i did when i was 14 you do You're 14, you know it all. 43, you don't know jack squat. (laughs) The more I live, the more I experience, the more it seems that much of life is beyond our comprehension. But we want to think, and we do think, well, someone must know the answers because we want answers. We want them so bad, we are the generation that invented Google. Anything you want to know, Google it. Right? Oh, I wonder about, oh, I think I'll Google it. The seven voices of thunder. I know. Google it. We want it and we want it now. Google tells it to you quickly. It tells you right on the screen. It took us one millionth of a second to give you your answer. This is the people that we've become. So we think somebody somewhere must know the answer. It's just not me. But when life really gets messy, when it's not funny anymore, when we're searching high and low for answers, we, we often comfort each other with this fact, and it's true. Well, God knows. I and mean, that's fine. God does know. But we also must confront the fact that even though God knows, he's not telling you. There's something in that. God is... Refusing to tell us something here. Seal it up. Do not write it. An old Christian hundreds of years ago said this. If knowing answers to life's questions is absolutely necessary to you, then forget the journey. You will never make it. For this life is a journey of unknowables, of unanswered questions, enigmas, incomprehensibles and most of all, things unfair. Leave that up there for a while. This is a journey of unknowables, unanswered questions, enigmas, incomprehensible. Most of all, things unfair. Sure, there's lots of ways in which that connects with you, but think about something like what we mentioned earlier. 21 Christians, their heads severed from their body on a beach on the other side of the world. Where was God when each of their heads? We're being severed. I mean, it's hard to think of something more unjust than that. Incomprehensible. Where was God? You know, the book of Revelation is made up of just such things. We see just these sort of people. In the book of Revelation, if you'll turn to chapter six, you'll remember this chapter six. Starting in verse nine. And when he Jesus broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Here we are, Christians, people murdered, slain for their belief in Jesus Christ. Injust, incomprehensible, verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Lord, this is a thing most unfair. This is incomprehensible. This is unknowable. And they, like us, are saying, God, how long? Another way of saying that in our common vernacular is, God, where were you? God, where are you? We've been slain for being followers of Jesus Christ. And it seems like you're not doing anything. For the extreme Muslims who cut their heads off are alive and well today. The answer is most unsettling. Verse 11, and there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. We hate that answer. I want justice now. I want recompense now. I want this to be dealt with now. This is unimaginable. This is unfair. I want this in my life to be resolved now. And the answer that comes from heaven is just relax. Rest a little while longer. And the reason why they're to wait is even more disturbing until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. I was talking to a dear friend whom I love very much this week. And for him right now, though different circumstances, his life feels very much like this. Or something so unjust, it seems, and unfair and incomprehensible, doesn't make sense, is happening. And he's holding on, wait a little while. And more happens. This is where the old saying comes from when it rains, it pours. Doesn't life seem like that sometimes? He's got the white robe, he's a Christian. Rest in Christ. But when will this be resolved? When will this tension of injustice, of incomprehensibles, of pain be resolved? Wait a little while longer. There is more difficulty to come is the answer. Well, thank you. (laughs) And though it is hard, the book of Revelation helps us tremendously in these moments Because we do see that the world is perverse and there's much injustice, whether we're watching the news or reading the text. But the text did tell us, don't let this fact escape your notice, that in just a little while, God's justice is coming. In just a little while. God is using merciful language here to tell us to hold on you know, when you're driving your family on vacation and you're going to Mammoth, how much longer? Just a little while. From their perspective, it's forever. They feel as though they will never live through the drive. How much longer? Just a little while. You know, the older you get, the faster time goes by. So drive to Mammoth is like pff, nothing. I don't even need to stop for the bathroom. (laughs) When you're a kid, it's like the end of days. Oh my gosh, when? (laughs) Just a little while. From God's perspective, just a little while. He's compassionate with us. He knows that we are his children, that we're frail, and we're just like dust. And we say, along with the martyrs in this text, how much longer will life be incomprehensible? How much longer will injustice and wickedness seem to go unconfronted and unchecked in our world? Just a little longer. And I know that sometimes it seems like too long. But we must be reminded of the end for that's how the book of Revelation helps us to stand firm and hold on in difficult days. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Let's sneak a peek at the end once again. Revelation chapter 20. We've been here before. There's a lot of questions, but we'll get to the text and deal with them in a few weeks. But just verse 4. In the context of what we've been talking about, the 21 Egyptian Christians and the martyrs in the book of Revelation and difficulty in our own lives. Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The book of Revelation is raw and honest. The Bible is honest. Jesus told us there'd be days like this. Jesus told us in this world you will have much tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world The book of Revelation is honest. There is now and there are coming difficult days, but there is coming also a different day. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for being followers of Christ and they lived and reigned with Christ. The book of Revelation reminds us that the things happening over there at the hands of those people will not carry the day. Evil does not have the final word. Death is not ultimate. There is coming a different day through the person and work of Jesus Christ when those who were beheaded will live and reign with him. And this is how the book of Revelation is helping us because there is in our own lives, maybe it's not beheadings, but there is in our own lives so much that we don't deep places of things being severed from us. Pain, origin of which we don't always understand. But you know what we should do, don't you, when there's things that we don't know, is we need to lean into the things that we do know. Where was God when those men were on the beach? Well, God was on his throne. The book of Revelation has already told us that. But it doesn't seem that way. I know the book of Revelation tells us that. But it has told us that God is on his throne, meaning he's sovereign, he's in control. And there has never been a moment and there will never be a day where he releases or forfeits or loses or absconds that control. He's on his throne. And Christ is the lamb who was slain. No matter what comes our way, we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ through our faith in him. Our salvation secure in the lamb who was slain for us. And he's the lion. As sure as he brought God's mercy to the world, he will bring God's justice to the world. So that when there's all these things that we don't know, all these enigmas and unanswered questions, the Christian has a wonderful opportunity to lean into what we do know. God is on his throne. We see the end. How God brings to all things to a right end. Evil is confronted. Everything that's gone wrong is undone. And Christ is for us. And so what can ever separate us from the love of God? Look the next chapter over in verse 21. Chapter 21, pardon me. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. You see this future answer to the present question, where was God that day? There's coming a different day and God himself will be among them. Look at the difference of this day, verse four. And he shall wipe every tear from their eyes and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things will have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are faithful and true. Therein is the answer. In Revelation chapter 10, God said to John, don't write that down. There are certain things that we don't need to know or couldn't comprehend. But here he said to John, write this down. For these words are faithful and true. On these words, you can lean. In these words, you can put your hope. These words, you can take to the bank. These words will carry us in the valley of the shadow of death. These words will sustain us in the unimaginable moments of unanswered questions. These words are faithful and true. When life is full of things that you don't know, you've got to, brother. You've got to, sister. Lean into what you do know. Behold, I am making all things new. Go ahead. And I would just suggest to us that what we do know is enough. Enough. We must learn to trust God with what we don't know. We can do gymnastics all day long to try to figure out what the seventh thunder said. But we just need to learn to trust God with what we don't know. The diagnosis we don't understand. The death that doesn't make sense. The severing that is unimaginable. We need to learn to trust God with what we don't know because what we do know is enough. This is where the Apostle Paul landed. He said in Romans chapter 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Hear that, brothers and sisters. I consider that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worthy to be compared. You know what we do when we're comparing things? We're trying to see which one is better. Which one will I accept? Which one has more worth? Which one do I want? Around which one am I going to build my life? Which one forms my identity? Which one is worth investing in? And he says that these present troubles are not even worthy to be compared with the end of the story. So stop comparing Stop letting the unknowns of the day rule our lives when what we do know is so glorious. This is to trust Christ. This is to be men and women of the book. This is to hold in high esteem God's holy word. Back in verse 10, chapter 10, excuse me, and we'll end. That's a preacher ploy of saying we have a little while longer. (laughs) We actually know where God is when all these things unfold, and we know how it ends, that the glory outweighs. This is what we need to know. Verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand and swore by him who lives for ever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. But that in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. This is what we need to know. But in the book of Revelation, we are in a turning point. There's still a lot of tough stuff to come, but there's a turning point. This is what we need to know. That in our lives, there is great hope in the coming kingdom. Just in the next chapter, we'll get to this. Verse, chapter 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, the Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Let that be the final word. There's a turning point in this chapter. There's not going to be delay anymore. It's actually quite a long road. We've still got a lot of chapters to go and there's a lot of gnarly stuff in the book of Revelation. The drive is only about halfway through. But from the perspective of God, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Therefore, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, rest. Rest in what you know about God and his sovereignty, about Christ and his finished work. We can endure the unknowns and we can obey what we do know. This is the point of the little book. Last few verses, verse eight. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Surely the book is representative of God's word in some degree. It's like the scroll in chapter four. It's the truth about what's going to happen to the world and God's coming justice and judgment. Surely those are the things included there in the book. This is in some way God's word. And he eats it and it's sweet in his mouth, but it's bitter in his stomach. And there is a bitterness to God's word. What? There is a bitterness to God's word. It was sweet in his mouth because it's, evil being confronted, justice coming. We all long for that day. How long, O oh Lord? We all long for that day. God's coming judgment is sweet in our mouth, but it has profound implications for the world we live in, people we love, people we know. There is a bitterness to God's judgment coming because when God's judgment comes, nobody or nothing will be untouched by. it. That has profound implications for our lives and for people that we know. It was, oh, yes, God's justice coming, amen, sweet like honey, but wow, the heaviness of the reality of that. And you know, God's word is just this way in our lives. There's lots of things about God's word which we're quick to, amen, but which are hard for us to stomach. Take, for example, the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, right, wants to be my follower, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save, will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, if you're a Christian, you read that and you say, oh, yes and amen, the sweetness of the call of Christ. If you're honest, you find some real difficult things to stomach in that passage. Because it's all yes and amen in the sweetness of God's word until we're called to deny ourselves. Until it's something that you feel entitled to. Until it's a position or reputation that you think ought to be yours. Until it's you and your spouse engaged in head-to-head combat and who's gonna back down. Until it's something that you've decided you must have to carry on. And the call of following Christ, obeying is to deny yourself. That's where the bitterness comes in. You see, what we wanna do is we wanna stay in the sweet places of honey. We want to just say, oh, yes, and amen to the word of God. But we are called to ingest God's word. We're called to assimilate and obey. God's word is meant to dwell richly in us, Colossians 3.17. We're kind of like connoisseurs of the word. We hear it. We say, yes, amen, preach it, sounds good. We read it, yes, yes but we've not ingested it until we're endeavoring to obey it. What happens when I want to gain the world and the things of the world and the riches thereof and the reputation and the call of Jesus is otherwise? These are the bitter moments of discipleship. Jesus told us that this call would be difficult. In the parable of the sower and the seeds, he said this. Some seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. In a similar way, these are ones, now he's explaining what that means to his disciples, on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word of God, immediately receive it with joy. It's like honey, amen, it's God's word. But they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, listen to this, when affliction or persecution comes because of the word, immediately they fall away. In other words, everybody loves the honey, but the rubber meets the road with the upset tummy. When the call of discipleship is hard to stomach, when the call of obedience is contrary to my will and what I want, this is where the rubber meets the road. John was called to ingest the word. Jesus told us man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Ezekiel was told in Ezekiel chapter three to take God's word, to eat it, and to apply it to himself. Jeremiah did the same thing and discovered the joy of it. Jeremiah 15, your words were found and I ate them. I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart for I've been called by your name, O Lord of hosts. What are we talking about here? We're talking about obedience to the word. Billy Graham once said, the greatest sin in America is listening to sermons. meaning not doing anything about the sermons. James said it this way, be doers of the word, not merely hearers of the word. If you just hear God's word, if it's just kind of like honey that you're sampling, but you don't do it, you're fooling yourself. God's word, brothers and sisters, is meant to be obeyed. And there's enough in there of what we do know and what we're called to, to satisfy what we don't know and what we don't understand. Therefore, I have been compelled to say this week that I ought to obey obey Jesus without question. I ought to devour and ingest the word. And I'll tell you what, guys, it's been hard for me. I read the Bible every day. I wake up at 4 a.m. read the scriptures. I spend hours studying it during the week to preach it and for other things for my own edification. And it's always like honey in my mouth, but I very seldom want the upset stomach. I very seldom want the bitterness. There are things that are hard for me to stomach because of my own self-will and sin. So I've confronted myself this week with three questions. Number one, is there some sort of sin that I need to forsake? Maybe you might ask yourself the same question. Man, this was was tough for me this week. In light of God's word and the call to obedience that I think is here in the text, is there some sin that I need to forsake? I thought long and hard on that. And I'm not going to tell you what mine was. (laughs) And I'm not asking you to tell me about yours. But I'm asking you to ask yourself this question with the help of the Holy Spirit. Are you merely a connoisseur of God's word and you hear it and you swish it around and it's sweet but you're not willing to stomach it? Or is there some sin that needs to be forsaken? The other question with which I confronted myself this week is, is there something that needs to be forgotten? A grievance against me, perhaps. Is there something that needs to be forgotten? I am astounded and disappointed at my tenacity in holding on to wrongs done against me when through Jesus my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea, and God chooses to remember them no more. But I can't forgive it from five years ago. Not willing to stomach that deep call on the disciple of Christ. So I've had to ask myself, had to confront these things. Is there something I need to forsake? Is there something I need to forget in obeying the word? And the final question, the last way that I will burden you this morning is this one. Is there someone who needs forgiveness? In other words, is there a place where I ought to be telling the gospel that I'm not? Because if this is true, if this is true, Then there's a real sweetness to God's confrontation of evil. But if this is true, then there's a real bitterness to God's confrontation of evil because it will affect people whom I know and love. Is there somewhere that the gospel needs to be heard and I'm not telling it? So this week I journaled names. For me, it was people that I grew up surfing with and surf with today and see at RingCon every single day. I just started praying in writing. For their salvation, that God would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God would give me the bravery and the boldness to communicate to the gospel to the them. It's easy for me to stand on a stage and do it, there's very few consequences. It's much harder one on one. I've been asking God for bravery for boldness, for the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if this is true, if judgment is coming and sin isn't a joke and God is going to deal with it and there's going to be wrath, then there are people that I care about that need to know. In fact, there are people around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. Never heard the name of Jesus. Surely some of us are called to go there There are a few thousand people groups who have no witness of Jesus Christ amongst them whatsoever. Totally unengaged. Surely going somewhere where the gospel is not is a worthy way to spend your life. And everyone says, yes and amen. That's like sweet honey, but that's bitter, isn't it? The call on me to leave this life and the comforts here and the safety here to go to places where they behead Christians, places beyond there where there are no Christians. Things like that are the bitterness of God's word. But the end game tells me it's worth it. He shall be among his people and he shall wipe away every tear. There will be no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning, no more death. For the old things have passed away, all things have become new. And he said, write this down. For these words are faithful and true. In other words, you can build your lives on this. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord... Um, I always feel weird after a sermon like this, Lord, because I know it's kind of heavy-handed, and I'm usually easier on my own sin than I am on other people's. I too easily excuse my own laziness with the gospel and call other people to not be that way. And so we just pray together for honesty and humility before the Holy Spirit and one another, that you would talk to us about sin that needs to be forsaken and things that need to be forgotten, but that you wouldn't just let us live in that place. You would also call us beyond ourselves in our inner drama to the world around us that desperately needs the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe even right now, you would call people in our midst to just speak to the person in the cubicle next to them. Maybe tomorrow, maybe Monday. Just start talking about Jesus. Maybe it's our schoolmates. Maybe it's our family. That's where it's hardest. Maybe it's the people that we recreate with. Maybe it's people really far away in really gnarly places that have never heard the name of Jesus. We want our lives to count for your gospel for surely, Christ, you are coming again to establish your kingdom. But grace and mercy are already here in the gospel. Help us to be faithful with it. We ask it together in Jesus' name.